Hey, Katie. Hey, Ben. How you doing? I am okay, but I just got home from work and I'm dealing with some, basically some technical debt, some stuff that we didn't necessarily do cleanly when we built the system a while back, and now we're paying the price for it, so I'm having to go and fix some things. Been there, brother. Is it a machine learning system or just regular old software? <laughs> no, I don't make machine learning systems. I just okay. talk about them on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, as it turns out, machine learning systems are real technical debt accumulators, and uh, that's what I wanted to talk about today. All right, let's do it. You're listening to Linear Digressions. So in particular, the paper that I read to prepare for this has maybe one of my favorite titles of any paper we've talked about, mm -hmm. which is Machine Learning colon, The High Interest Credit Card of Technical Debt. The high interest. They're wow, really taking the technical good. debt metaphor to the next level here. Yeah. Um, so I guess a little bit of background for folks who are not as steeped in the technical jargon here. The idea of technical debt is that it's it's a metaphor for the price that you pay for moving quickly, where namely that price is that you make code that is brittle or hard to maintain or not very elegant, uh, sprawly, filled with weird exceptions. In general, it has low quality of engineering mm -hmm. as a consequence of moving so quickly. And so the idea is that technical debt, like regular debt, is something that's easy to accumulate. And then eventually you either continue to pay interest on it, so working with this difficult to maintain system, or you have to take a bunch of time later on to pay it off and refactor the code and that sort of thing. So this is kind of a common term in software development. Right. And it's definitely not an idea that is specifically uh, only applicable to software development or to, um, uh, to data science. Uh, I do woodworking in my, in my free time and I definitely accrue a ton of technical debt in the things that I build. It's really totally fine as long as I don't keep building on top of the structures that I build. Because the longer, if I build something shoddily and my right angles are not actually right angles, uh, and I take some shortcuts because I want to build something and hack it together and get it to work, if I'm then building things on top of that, that's really a bad foundation upon which to build. Um, so it's basically the idea of building something quickly and maybe even consciously accruing that technical debt and making a choice, uh, but then having to pay it off later if you keep building on a system. Yeah, so the analogy here is with machine learning systems that very often machine learning is seen as a, a nice way to solve hard problems, <laughs> right? Right. Uh, you're trying to do statistical modeling to predict what's going to happen in the future or classify events or whatever. And in particular, machine learning systems can be very difficult to maintain. Uh, it's very, the technical debt associated with machine learning systems can be really easy to stack up and it can be really, really expensive to pay off. And so that's the general premise of this paper is let's talk about why that is and what that means. So the first uh, set of observations that, that they make is that uh, complex models erode the boundaries that we usually think of as being a prerequisite for good software. So good software is oh. uh, modularized, mm -hmm. and it has well-defined boundaries between 
discrete pieces. And so that way, these individual pieces, you can swap them in and out more easily. You can test them more easily. You can reason about them too. Yes, much more than something that's very complicated. But the thing about machine learning models is that the models aren't software. They're a combination of software and the data that goes into the software. Mm. And that dependence on this external factor, namely the external data, means that it's a lot harder to reason about what the software is doing because what the software is doing will necessarily change based on the data that you're putting into it. Oh, that's uh, fascinating. Yeah. So basically your different parts of your program, if you were to separate them, would be tightly coupled because of the data that is necessarily a part of them. That's crazy. Yeah, and the, <laughs> right. And the, the inputs that you're putting in, the inputs will be changing because the data in general will be changing. Mm. And so then the outputs will be changing as well. And so it's a little bit harder than to define exactly what the software should be doing yeah. because it's dependent upon the stuff you're putting into it. Yeah, that seems fundamentally different from most other engineering. Yeah, yeah, and in a way that people don't necessarily realize when they start out. I mean, another thing that I'll point out is that when you're learning how to build machine learning systems, uh, very often the stuff that you learn at the beginning of that process is how to think about algorithms and how to think about maybe feature selection and model performance metrics. And so very often what you do is build lots of models for the first time. You start with a data set and you build a model and then you print out the accuracy of that model and call it a day. But what we're really talking about here is a totally different ballgame, although it doesn't sound that different, which is maintaining a model over a long period of time, which because of the way that typically people get introduced to this field, they don't get a lot of experience with. And it can be much, much harder to maintain a model than it is to build it the first time. Mm, yeah, that, that definitely makes sense. As a web developer, the same thing applies. You can build a website pretty quickly, um, but if you want to make it uh, extensible and easily modifiable and everything, that's it's a bit more work up front. Yeah. Yeah, another thing that's hard in this in this genre of problems is that if you're a good data scientist, hopefully your models are getting used by people in your organization or your customers or whatever. And that can make it challenging too because you don't necessarily have control over who's consuming your model and what they're using it for. Sometimes you know, but sometimes it's maybe you're publishing predictions and there are a lot of different people who might be going and picking up those predictions. Uh, so in that case in particular, if you change around the model or if you, you need to make some kind of adjustment, then uh, the people that you're sending those model predictions to don't necessarily know that you made that change. And so those changes become pretty expensive because you have to really validate them and make sure that the predictions that you're making today are not radically different from the ones from yesterday, or if they are, you have to let everybody know. And so I guess there's probably some, some analogs here in a lot of software, but in particular, the predictions that you get from machine learning models can be harder to know who your customers are than maybe with a piece of software that you've written. Hmm. So another thing about machine learning models, we talked a little bit about how data is an important part of the ingredient list and data is challenging to work with, uh, especially 
I think data is a lot harder to work with than code personally. Um, and just like you can have dependencies in code where one piece of code has a relationship with another piece of code and so you can't change one without thinking about the other, uh, the same thing happens with data sets. So we talked on this podcast uh, not too long ago about, for example, how very often there's different versions of data sets that will be processed and created and derived from each other. And uh, I would think of those as data dependencies. So you might have several different data sets that are relevant for your pipeline, or you have to understand how the processing happens between those data sets. Um, and sometimes those dependencies can be unstable and you have changes that propagate through your data in a way that's very hard to track. You can version your data and be able to roll back to previous versions, but as we talked about already in previous episodes, that introduces a lot of cost and there's a huge maintenance burden around uh, data versioning. And another thing that I think is easy to sneak up on you is very often people will build out machine learning models sort of experimentally so let's say that you have a model that's trying to predict whether someone is going to, I don't know, what's something that's not, that sounds pretty mundane, like something you would have a model on. Let's say whether somebody's going to click on an ad. All right. Uh, so you might have all these attributes of, some, of somebody's web behavior. And as a data scientist, one of the things you like to think about is what are different features that we could engineer that we could pass to our model in a way that improve our predictions and there might be a whole bunch of ideas that you've had and that you've tried implementing. And some of them, maybe you saw slight changes in the model. And so you've decided to keep some of those features around. But let's say the underlying data has changed or maybe the data, those features were never that good to begin with, but you mm -hmm. just weren't very mm -hmm. rigorous about it. Uh, maybe there, was, there were 25 features that you added all at the same time because you didn't want to test them one at a time. So there's these bundled features. The general idea being that it's really easy to add features into models and significantly mm. harder to take them out, I think. And so the models Got become it. sometimes really heavy and dependent on the data in a, in a heavier way than they need to be. That makes a lot of sense. And you see that in, um, in a lot of things that you build on computers, right? Is you, de you never quite know if... Uh, if you're using something or if you want to be using something. And even if you feel reasonably certain that you can remove something, there's still some amount of doubt. Yeah, yeah. It can be really hard to convince yourself that, you know, the best use of your time is cleaning out old legacy features or mm -hmm. getting rid of bundled features or whatever. But they always, you know, just become difficult to maintain. But again, hard to convince yourself to clean it up. You know, that, that seems to be a prominent feature in a lot of technical debt. Is it something that you could do, but it doesn't necessarily feel like the best use of your time? Similarly with refactoring code, uh, it, it doesn't ever really feel like the best use of your time. And, and really? actually, I, Oh, I disagree. I love refactoring. I oh, mean, I guess it's really fun to add new features, but... Boy, well, oh boy, do I love getting rid of code. <laughs> just, to, just to clarify, uh, I love refactoring too. But if you have uh, people that you're reporting to or people that you're doing this for, they might not see the benefit. And it's kind of hard. It's kind of a hard case to make sometimes um, because you don't 
you don't see this as I guess this isn't as big of a problem when you're not doing things on the computer, right? When you're not uh, programming or building things or building models. If things get cluttered up or if the code becomes difficult to reason about, it's a long-term play to refactor it or to um, to clean up things. Whereas the short-term play is, oh, well, there's this new feature that we really need, you know, or or whatever, so let's do that instead. Yeah, I suppose so. Uh, that's that's fair. It's I imagine the the manager's incentive or the boss's incentive to keep moving and not clean up that technical debt. But right. yeah, of course, eventually it starts to slow everything down. Uh, let's see. What are some of the other things that are obnoxious? So, uh, correction cascades. So this is something that. I've done a few times and it never ends particularly well. So let's imagine that you build a model and it's pretty good, but there's maybe some corner cases in which you think it's weak, maybe even for theoretical reasons, not not just based on the performance that you've observed, but you think that, okay, this model is pretty good for this 80% of the cases that I'm going to give to it, but for the other 20%, what I want to do is have a second model or a correction or something like that that's going to tweak the value and then I'm going to take those two separate paths and I'm going to merge them back together and then those are going to be my predictions. So in other words, let's say I have a model that if I have a, a score that it's above 0.9, then I assign it as a 1 and if it's a below 0.5 then I assign a zero and then between 0.5 and 0.9 is this gray zone and then there's a complicated thing that I do in there to try to gain more certainty let's say. Now this is something that makes some sense and at the time that you're building it is usually not obviously extremely expensive but it means that now there's several different levels of decision making within the model and so that means that changes to one level of decision-making have effects on the other level of de decision-making. Mm -hmm. So you can't change the first model without thinking about how that's going to propagate through to the second model and vice versa. So then it becomes a lot harder for you to make changes anywhere because the changes are going to go all kinds of places that are usually hard to keep track of. So I have a question for you then. Do you... When you're making uh, choices about what things to try, are you more resistant to trying out things that will make your code more tightly coupled and therefore give you more technical debt, potentially? Tightly coupled, you mean amongst the kind of sub-pieces of my code? Right. So I personally have <laughs> experimented with many different modes around this. I, what generally happens is you start writing your code one way, grow dissatisfied with it, and then the next project you swing the other way uh, <laughs> right. between big, very self-consistent and internally coherent but monolithic code bases to stuff that's much more confederated and but maybe harder to keep organized, harder to keep it all coherent. The thing that is probably the right balance is... The ideal thing is if you can come up with a good set of rules for yourself around the big sub-pieces of the system that you're building and the rules under which they interact with each other. So what are the interfaces between the big sub-pieces? And then 
further break down those sub pieces into sub sub pieces that are themselves self-consistent. And so the mm-hmm. idea being that you have all these little boxes and the interfaces between the boxes are well controlled and you have a lot of discipline there. Uh, but the, blo- the boxes themselves, you can have a lot of freedom for changing mm-hmm. around what it is you put in them. And then hopefully your coding exercises, if you want to do something that's really complex, it's just assembling the boxes into a more complex workflow rather than coding a big long script that has to encode a lot of more complex logic. And in particular, there's this is a thing we've been working on a lot at work recently, is there are some nice packages that manage uh, machine learning workflows in particular. Uh, so the one that we've been using a lot and putting into our software is called Mistral, uh, but there's also stuff called Luigi and Airflow, and it's generally software that allows you to write, in our case, machine learning, pieces of machine learning workflows, and then string those together in a way such that you can have, say, step A feeds into step B, step B, step feeds into step C. After step C, maybe there's a fan out to a bunch of different parallel processes. And once those all complete successfully, it'll gather up all the results and like make a report or whatever. So you can, you can support uh, potentially stuff that's really complex, but each of the individual boxes within that very complex workflow is itself much more limited in scope and easier to understand. And thinking about the code that way has been really nice for me. So if you can if you can put your code into that paradigm, in my experience, that's usually the best way to do it if you can. So you said there were a number of ways it can go wrong. Do you have more? Oh, do I ever. Um, sure. So I just painted you this very rosy picture of individual modular pieces of code that you can string together into workflows of arbitrary complexity. Uh, the code that actually holds those pieces together, what we think of as glue code, can be really expensive to maintain. So the idea here in general is that machine learning has lots of code sometimes in general purpose packages, and then glue code is what's shuttling the data in and out of the algorithms. But that glue code makes it pretty expensive to change the overall strategy because you're hard coding in the flow of the data from piece to piece. And moving data around can sometimes be part of the one of the more challenging aspects of machine learning. It's not the algorithms themselves. Uh, so this is a place where you have to be a little bit careful. And in particular, the position that's advocated in this paper is that if you have tons and tons of glue code that's holding together uh, calls to simpler algorithms that are doing the machine learning, it's sometimes worth refactoring the code or even re-implementing the algorithm sometimes in a way that reduces the glue code. I don't know that this has come up that often for me personally, although that might be just a reflection of the uh, conditions under which I do most of my work. But like, we have a big emphasis on reusability, for example, so having modular algorithms is very much what we're trying to do. But I could imagine that in certain use cases, if it's sort of inefficient to take an off-the-shelf algorithm and then wrap a lot of glue code around it, that maybe re-implementing the entire thing is not a terrible use of time. 
And a related thing is what they call pipeline jungles. So this is where you have, in particular, lots of different data sources that are feeding in, and then tons of glue code to bring all the data together before you can even start sending it into the machine learning algorithm. And those things can be just a monster to maintain. Getting data around is fairly hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there are a few more here. I, I'm not, I won't necessarily go into every single one of these. It's a really good paper, though. We'll put a link on lineardigressions.com. Um, but stuff about dead experimental code paths. So sometimes you try something out. And this is kind of like features uh, that we talked about earlier, features right. that aren't that useful. Sometimes you have whole code paths that aren't that useful, but you don't really want to go through the trouble of trimming them away. Or depending on uh, what kind of tooling you have, you might not have the confidence to strip them away. Oh, yeah, totally. Or somebody else wrote them, and you don't know what they do anymore, but your system sort of works, so just why would you poke at it? You don't want to hurt their feelings. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And then the last thing that I'll mention really quickly is that uh, your machine learning models are probably bringing in data from the outside world, and sometimes the outside world changes. So when the outside world changes, your data changes, and then your model can change very suddenly sometimes, and sometimes in ways that you don't understand. So keeping track of the outputs and monitoring the performance of the models and comparing it to previous performance, looking at the inputs of the, of the models, looking at the outputs of the models, and setting up that monitoring system can be really expensive. But... At some point, something will change, and so if you don't have a way of catching that, then uh, that can be a pretty expensive mistake to make. Linear Digressions is a Creative Commons endeavor, which means you can share or use it any way you like. Just tell them we said hi. To find out more about this or any other episode of Linear Digressions, go to LinearDigressions.com. And if you like this podcast, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content too. You can always get in touch with either of us. Our emails are ben at lineardigressions.com and katie at lineardigressions.com in case you have comments or suggestions for future shows. You can tweet us at lindigressions. Thank you for joining us and we'll see you next time.